All right, would you please take the Word of God with me this evening and uh, turn to uh, Psalm 11. Now, I know we do this every time we meet together. We open the Bible, and uh, I hope that we, although we do, I'm sure, become acquainted of doing it, and uh, we forget the wonderful privilege it is uh, to be able to hold the Word of God in our hands and to read it and to study it, and uh, to know um, God better, to know ourselves better, to know how the world works better. And certainly it's helpful to have the Word of God. And so uh, we're going to begin in just a moment reading in Psalm 11. Now if you would like to hold your place now, unless you have a uh, quick set of fingers. We're going to be also in 1 Samuel chapter 18, so maybe if you want to hold your place there in 1 Samuel 18. And so before we read this psalm, I would like to set forth the structure of the psalm. And what I mean by structure is kind of the order in which we find things. And so first of all, David, uh, as he begins this psalm, it says it's um, uh, the chief musician, a psalm of David. Uh, David declares that his trust is, is in the Lord, and it's, he makes a declarative statement. In the Lord put I my trust, and that's how he begins. And uh, then from verse 1 down to verse 3, we see that uh, David evidently has a number of advisors who are encouraging him to flee to the mountain. And they proceed to give David some important reasons why he should flee to the mountain. And then, uh, from verse 4 to verse 7, is David responds to them and he explains his trust in the Lord. And so that's how we see the psalm. David declares his trust in the Lord. His advisors encourage him to flee the mountain, to, to flee to the mountain, and then he explains his trust in the Lord. Now, now, this is an important conversation to study because it happens regularly among God's people. It is natural for us to be overtaken by present circumstances or by the world around us. Now, what we find in the Psalms is sometimes the psalmist, as he's dealing with circumstances himself, you find him struggling. And he writes the psalm, and the psalm is about his struggle, and how he is able to encourage himself in the Lord. Many of the psalms are that way, but this psalm is a little different in that the psalm, psalmist here is himself trusting in the Lord, but those who are conversing with him are telling him to do something. That he ends up saying, I'm not going to do it. And so uh, this is a little different as we've been acquainted thus far in the first uh, 10 psalms. Now, um, I think we all know that we all have points and moments in our lives when we become disappointed with our circumstances. Uh, we also may be, uh, become disappointed by the state of the world, and we may express that disappointment. Uh, what should our response be? How should we respond in the way that would please the Lord? Uh, and I believe that we find some help in this 11th Psalm. And so, we're going to read here this psalm. It's just seven verses, but uh, packed with some good truths. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 11. Verse 1. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. 
Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. I'd like to bring your attention here to verse 3. It's the question. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so I'd like to preach a message this evening on this question. What can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful again for your word. Lord, help us to come away from uh, the study of your word this evening, uh, having an, an answer to that question. What can the righteous do? And so, Lord, help us to um, not fall in the trap of doing the wrong thing. But may we do what the righteous ought to do as we find a pattern in this psalm for us. And so give us understanding by your Spirit. Conform us to the image of Christ. And help us, Lord, to leave this place encouraged this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, Psalm 11 here, the background, uh, there are many suggestions as to what is the background of this particular psalm. And so, uh, what I want to do here, I want to set forth the probable background of the psalm. And I I say probable because it's not certain. Uh, there is yet sufficient evidence to give us some indications. That's the way I would put it. Uh, there is evidence within this psalm and based upon what we read uh, in the Old Testament as to the context of this psalm. But it, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 18. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. Now I believe that the psalm, one of their great values uh, in the fact that they're not specific as to the context often is that it helps us because then we can apply it to different contexts. Uh, and some, so we're not limited by a specific context, although sometimes when we are aware of the context, it does help us with the interpretation of a particular psalm. Uh, now, now here, if you notice, as we read this psalm, uh, we're going to begin here reading in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let me give you some background leading up to this chapter. Uh, David, uh, Saul has been rejected from being king. That's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, David has been anointed as the, as the next king of Israel. Uh, he's uh, David, remember, he uh, went to the battlefront in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and he defeated Goliath, and there was a great victory in Israel. Well, they, they come back, and uh, after this great victory, and uh, people are singing songs about David and about King Saul. And, and we find that in chapter 18. Uh, let's just pick it up in, in uh, verse 5. 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. And David went out with, with uh, whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6. And it came to pass, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, just so we kind of know the scene when it says, the woman answered one to another as they played. So probably half the women on this side would say, Saul has slain his thousands. And then the other women would reply, David has slain his ten thousands. So you see how that appears? Uh... It's kind of a reply. It's a comparison that's taking place there. Uh, they were answering back and forth. And uh, uh, you could see, uh, you think about when people cheer, they try to outdo the other. Well, obviously, obviously David has the upper hand in the song. He's got the 10,000s. And no doubt the women were more excited about the 10,000 than the 1,000. Uh, and so immediately we see the, the response of Saul. Verse 8, and Saul was very wroth. The Bible doesn't mention, but we know that that's jealousy. He says, and saying, uh, the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he 
have more but the kingdom. And Saul eyed David from that day forward. He, he, he kept an eye on him. He had those sentiments of anger and jealousy towards David from that day forward. Notice verse 10. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand at, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it, and David avoided out of his presence twice. Now, if you have a javelin thrown the first time, you might not want to come back, but he came back. Verse 12, so happened happened twice. Verse 12, and Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Now we saw that back in chapter uh, 15, uh, that Saul was rejected from being king. Uh, Verse 13, therefore Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved, behaved, behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. So just so we know before the context here, uh, the thought here of David in the presence of Saul, uh, what, what's the, the timeline of what happened? It was not the first time that Saul threw a javelin at David, he ran off to the mountains. That's not how it happened. David on a number of occasions would come back to the court. Twice Saul tried to kill him with a javelin. And then after that, even after those two attempts, David continued to be a captain and to uh, be over the army. After this, we know that Saul is going to give David his daughter and so on. And, uh, And Saul is trying to get a David. He's trying to destroy him. And you can imagine, the Bible says in the context that people love David. Uh, David was surrounded by no doubt friends and people that loved him. We can imagine that some people said to David, you should probably go, David. You're in danger for your life. There's been some attempts at your life. You should, Saul, you should, uh, David, you should flee to your mountain. I believe that it is early on in David's life that this psalm is referring to because we know, by the way, eventually David did run for his life, but not at the onset. And so this uh, Psalm 11, as we read it, we see that David says, I trust the Lord, but there are those who say to David, flee to the mountain. It looks like, notice verse 2 of Psalm 11, For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. David had done nothing wrong, but yet Saul wanted to rid himself of David. And so I believe here that this psalm can apply to early on when David was in the courts of Saul, and Saul hated David, he was jealous of David, and he tried to kill David, and David initially would not leave the courts, and he would not leave the authority of Saul. So when Saul became jealous of David, he began to conspire against him. In our text, we find Saul trying on a number of occasions to kill David, yet David remained for a time under the authority of Saul. And during that time, we we all would say here, based on what we read just a moment ago, that David was in danger. Those who knew David then would no doubt have counseled him to flee to the mountain for his safety. And so David eventually did flee, but it did not happen yet. So as we return to Psalm 11, let me uh, set forth the outline of this psalm. Now this is the outline I'll give you. Uh, The first thing that we're going to notice here in the psalm is the declaration of the one who is trusting. What is David going to say? He's going to make a declaration Then we're going to look at the despair of those who are troubled. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the dominion of he who is trustworthy. Notice, first of all, the declaration of the one who is trusting. Now, this is David as he's writing this psalm. Notice the first few words. In the Lord put I my trust. Now, when we come to verses like this, often the mistake we make is, okay, he's trusting in God and we move on. But I want us to here to note the details of those words. Uh, first of all, the, the, we notice that it's, it's an immediate declaration. It's almost as if here, he knows that the counsel is coming, it's been coming, 
And before he comes, he says, I want you to know that I am putting my trust in the Lord. Now, the word trust here, it's interesting because when we think about the counsel of his advisors is to flee to the mountain, the, the, the word trust means to flee, to find confidence in, to have hope in, to make your refuge in. Now, notice what he says. In the Lord put I my trust. So what is David saying? The psalmist says, I have fled to the Lord. I have found confidence in the Lord. I have set my hope in the Lord. He has been my refuge. And so it's important here to note here uh, that when we speak of trust, of trusting in the Lord, we must immediately make clear the object of our trust. What do you mean by that? Well, the psalmist put his trust in the Lord. Uh, note the order, as a matter of fact, of, this, of these words. In the Lord do I uh, put I my trust. And so notice, he begins first with the object of trust, not with trust itself. Now, many today, the reason why I say that is because many today speak in generalities. You, you hear people say, say things like this, well, have faith. Just have faith. Well, what does that mean? Uh, that is not actually helpful at all. You see, faith without an object is no faith at all. Uh, it'd be, uh, let's, let's just give an example here. If, if, if uh, my car was, was having trouble and I said, well, I don't know if my, my car is going to get me from point A to point B, that would probably be my wife saying those types of things. Uh, uh, she, she always the one, for those of you who don't know, she's always the one that breaks down with the cars. Uh, it's not her fault, it's just, it's just the way it happens. I, I don't know why it is that way. But uh, the point is, uh, I may say, well, uh, well, we're going on this trip, and I may turn over to uh, the person riding the car with me and say, wow, let's just have faith. Well, no, you would say, well, we have faith that the car will give us from point A to point B. And so the point here, we, we might think that the object of our trust is in the car, although unreliable it may be, uh, that's, where, that's the object of our trust. Uh, it, it means nothing to say, well, just have faith. Well, faith in what? In, in chance? In, in luck? Uh, you see, that, that means nothing at all. And so it's important for us when we speak of trust and faith that we attach that trust to the object of the trust. Here he begins with the object. In the Lord put I my trust. You see, the Lord must be front and center. We will consider here in a moment, by the way, what the advisors tell David to do. They are encouraging David to what? Flee and find refuge in what? In a mountain. David declares that his trust is not in a mountain, but his trust is in the Lord. He says, in the Lord put I my trust. You see, when we are agitated, we respond often with what must be done. We, we, we are agitated, there's trouble, there's affliction, what must be done? And we, ne what we never begin, we, we, we must never begin with what we must do, we must always begin with the Lord. Let me say that again. When we are agitated, we must never begin with what we must do. We must always begin with the Lord. So we see the declaration of the one who is trusting. But then we are immediately brought here to the despair of those who are troubled. Now evidently in the life of David, particularly early on, as we just read a moment ago, everybody loved David. Now we know throughout his life later when he's running from Saul, he's going to be betrayed by different people. And we understand, but at the onset... Because of his defeat of Goliath, because he was a captain, a good leader, and he wrought many victories, his popularity was increasing. And so people were a friend to David, and no doubt there were people around him who were advising David. And notice here what it says here. After he says, in, in the Lord put I my trust, verse 1, 
How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, so we, we have the initial, here's what you must do, flee to the mountain. Here's the reason why you must flee to the mountain. Verse 2, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. And so notice what the idea here is, uh, the enemy is preparing. He is trying to entrap you. There is a conspiracy against you. He is already prepared to wipe you out. By the which was what was happening with Saul. Saul was conspiring behind the scene. Part of giving his daughter uh, to David was to trick him. So, but notice here, the psalmist is not in despair, but those who are advising him are. Now, they end with a question. Now, I've quoted this verse before, but notice the question in verse 3. And I believe this question comes from his advisors. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What is he talking about? Well, the wicked have already been their boat. There is already a forethought at your destruction, David. There is no truth. There is no honesty. Uh, uh, There is already evil set against you. And so if there is no basis for your safety, if the foundations be destroyed, then what can the righteous do? That's the question. Now, by the way, uh, that, that question is never answered. Uh, we find that pattern through the Psalms. There are questions that are asked, and they are seldom answered. Why? Well, because, uh, and what I mean, they're seldom answered, they're not answered directly. And often answers are, uh, questions are not answered directly by a yes or no. <laughs> There's an explanation. Now, I want you to notice here, if we look at verse 3 here, the word foundation, when we think about foundation, we think of a, a basis or a support. And so, if you build a house, you will set a foundation. Uh, it is absolutely imperative to have a foundation for the house. Why? Because it gives the house stability. So, just as the integrity of a house rests upon the integrity of its foundation, so does a good functioning society rest on the integrity of its foundation. Uh, Should the foundations be destroyed, the house will be destroyed. Uh, Should the foundations of society be destroyed, the society itself cannot stand. You see, When truth is no longer accepted, can a society stand? The answer is no, by the way, just so I answer that question for you. Uh, uh, When justice is no longer practiced, can a society be sustained? No. Uh, When there is no fear of God in society, can that society continue to prosper? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, the context of this psalm, which I believe to be early on in David's life when he was in the courts of Saul and Saul was conspiring against him and his friends were saying, you need to go somewhere else. So uh, Saul does not have goodwill towards you. He cannot do good to you. Why? Because the foundations have been removed. He is not honest. He is angry. He is wrathful. He is out to kill you. There is nothing good that can come out of this. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, By the way, uh, Saul uh, became a very wicked man as a result. He killed the men of God just to get back at David. He became a very wicked man. And what happened in his life? The foundations were removed. Well, what was removed? I think, if, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to talk here about the foundations be removed. Now, I may talk about it here in the sense of society, but it applies to individuals. So notice with me Romans chapter 1. We're thinking about that question. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's ask ourselves the question then, what are the foundations? What are the foundations? Well, I believe Romans gives us the answer to that. Now, in Romans, we're talking probably broadly at uh, the cycle of human history. That's what we're looking at here 
you can go back to the days of Noah. You can go back to uh, the Tower of Babel. And that history that happens here in Romans 1 has repeated itself over and over and over again. And what happens every time is when the foundation are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is nothing. He can't do anything to repair the foundation. Why? Because the foundation has been destroyed. Destroyed. Okay, notice Romans 1, what are the foundations? Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. What is a foundation of society? Here it is, truth. Now if the foundations be destroyed. What does that mean? If truth is no longer held as truth. Now here, uh, the Bible says that they hold the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, they are rejectors of the truth. Now, uh, we continue here, verse 20 says, uh, verse 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, I could preach a long while on that verse, but basically he says this, that every man has the intuitive knowledge of God within himself, that every man has the witness of creation and the laws of nature uh, we're talking about uh, gravity, we're talking about time, uh, cycles, uh, the four seasons, all those things that re uh, point us to order and to a creator. And so that's a witness that every man has. He talks here about, uh, notice in, in verse uh, 20, he says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Well, how can something be invisible but clearly seen? Let me give you an example, gravity. You can't see it, but you can clearly see it. Right? Why? Because it happens everywhere you go. That's the laws of nature. That's a witness. Well, uh, what has man done? He's held the truth in unrighteousness. He has rejected the truth. He, had de he has destroyed the foundation. And by the way, we look at our society today. How do we get to this place? By, because the truth has been rejected. The basic truth about what is a man and what is a woman has been rejected. That's foundational to society. And if the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, another thing we find, verse 21, he says this, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Here is a, another foundation. Not only is the truth a foundation, but the fear of God is a foundation. If there is no fear of God, by the way, Proverbs begins the book uh, that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 9 goes on to say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so here's what happens. You remove the fear of God, wisdom and knowledge is gone. It's destroyed. Why? Because the foundation are, are destroyed. So the truth is a foundation. The fear of God is a foundation. But notice verse 25, there's something else. Notice who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so here's another foundation, the worship of God. They worship the creature more than the Creator. So, what are the foundations? There are these. Now, I'm talking about in society. Truth, the fear of God, and the worship of God. If the foundation should be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, that applies to a societal level, but let me say it also applies to the individual. The moment we cease to, or the moment we begin to reject the truth, and no longer fear God and no longer worship God as He deserves to be worshipped, there's a lot of trouble ahead in our lives individually. Just as there is a lot of trouble ahead in, in the societal front. So, 
What are the foundations? Truth, the fear of God, the worship of God. But also, if the foundations be destroyed, the question is what? What can the righteous do? Now, notice in Romans 1, it, he, he tells us, since the foundations have been destroyed, what is the consequence of that? Well, let me give you, first of all, verse 21. At the end, he says, And their foolish heart was darkened. Here's what happens. When truth ceases to be embraced, when there's no fear of God, when there's no worship of God, the heart becomes darkened. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They become fools. Notice verse 24. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 26, for this called God, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is uh, against nature. And so what has happened? Uh, they, uh, they have, uh, their heart has been darkened. They've become fools. They have been given over to uncleanness and vile affection. Then verse 28, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. They have been given over to a reprobate mind to do things that are not Convenient. If the foundations be destroyed, what are the foundations? Truth, the fear of God, the worship of God. If those foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer is that the righteous can do nothing. Why? Because the heart has been darkened. Uh, they've become fools. They have been given over to uncleanness and vile affection. They've uh, become reprobate in their mind. And they've given themselves over to things that are not convenient. And so the answer to the question is nothing. The righteous can do absolutely nothing. You say, Pastor, that's discouraging. Well, there is nothing that the righteous can do if the foundations be destroyed. Uh, something that has been destroyed cannot be remedied. It's destroyed. There is nothing we can do about the foundation. But there is something we can do. There is nothing we can do about the foundation, but there is something we can do. Now, going back to Psalm 11, my trust is in the Lord. David, flee to the mountain. People have set themselves against you. They're out to destroy you. David, come on. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Nothing good is going to come out of it. David, you can't fix the foundation. It's been completely destroyed. Saul's intent towards you is only evil. Nothing good will come out of it. David, you can't do anything about it. Well, David disagrees. It is true he cannot do anything about the foundation being destroyed. He can't fix Saul. He cannot change Saul's heart towards him. He cannot make Saul become good. He cannot make Saul fear God. He cannot make Saul accept the truth. He can't do any of that. But what can he do? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Notice verse 4. Now, do you see the question, verse 3? The foundations be destroyed. What can the righteous do? Here it is, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Wow, what a change, isn't it? You look on earth and you are disturbed by all the activities going on. and You look around and all the foundations have been destroyed. What can the righteous do? Well, he can do absolutely nothing about the foundation, but he can look up. He can look to the Lord. And that's exactly what David does. Now, I would say that verse 4 is faith. That's what I would say here. Now, let me remind you before we proceed in this psalm, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, they were living in a wicked city, he says this to them in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 
for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Let me say that again. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says later in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says this, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Pastor, I'm so concerned about the temporal, at the things that are seen. That's not how the Christian is to look. Why? Because the Christian lives by faith. By faith. We look at what is not seen. That's what David does. Is David not aware of Saul's intent? He is. Is David not aware that he's trying to kill him? He is. He saw the javelin come towards him. What can he do? Well, he can't stop Saul. But he can look at what is unseen. (laughs) He can look to the Lord. And so we change here from what we observe. And there's a notice there's a change that we see here from what the advisor of David observe and what they communicate to David. And now notice he's not talking about by faith. He's not saying, well, by faith I see God. He says this. Listen, listen. He says, by faith God sees me. Notice what he says in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. Notice verse 7. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. You see, I want us to see what is faith here in this psalm? I know we, say, we think Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Yes, yeah, that, that's faith, looking unto Jesus. But I suggest to you another element of faith is while everybody is looking at the things that are seen, the one who looks to God by faith says, I know that God sees me. He knows my plight. His countenance is beholding my life. And often that's the trouble that we live with. We think that God has forgotten. That God doesn't know. That God doesn't see our struggles. That God is distant. That He cannot intervene. And we live as though God doesn't see us. Now, this is important here for the following reason. Here, So in this outline we see that the declaration of the one who is trusting, David, uh, the despair of those who are troubled, the advisors of David. But then thirdly, we see the dominion of he who is trustworthy. The Lord, as, as that question is looming, if the foundations can be, be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's the answer to that question. There is nothing that you can do about the foundations when they're destroyed. Can you and I, you look at our society, can we reverse all of the immorality and the madness going on? Can we reverse it? There's nothing we can do about it to reverse it. But you know what we can do? We can look to the Lord. I like what uh, Charles Spurgeon said. He said, God sees each man as much and as perfectly as if there were no other creature in the universe. You. He sees you as if there were no other creature in the universe. Why? Because He is, we know, omnipotent, omniscient, and personal. The Lord is, notice those are emphatic terms, He is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You see, uh, here is what we can do. You ready? Here's what we can do. We can be reminded of where the Lord is. The Lord is in His holy 
temple. And so he brings his attention to the Lord's holiness. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He thinks about the Lord's throne. And then he says, His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. And now he says, The Lord knows. God is holy. He is on His throne. And He has perfect knowledge. So we can't do anything about the foundations. But we can be reminded of where God is. But also, we have to be reminded about what the Lord is doing. We know where He is. But what is He doing? That's that's the question. Uh, If you notice with me, let me look at two things. The first one, we're going to see what the Lord is doing with the wicked. And then what the Lord is doing with the righteous. That's how he identifies those. He says in verse, notice halfway through verse 5 and into verse 6, he says, But the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. So it's clear it's going to happen. The Lord has determined the end of the wicked. One devotional said, O people of God, how foolish is it to fear the faces of men who shall soon be engulfed in the fires of hell. Think of their end. Their fearful end and all fear of them must be changed into contempt of their threatenings and pity for their miserable estate. That's their end. And so the psalmist says, I know where God is and I know what God is doing. And by the way, he speaks of the the wicked and his end as in the shall it is future. Now remember, we live by faith, not by sight. But what we think is because God has not judged them now for their wickedness that somehow God is not fair. Well, God has not been fair towards us then because He didn't judge us when we deserve to be judged by His hand. So the Lord has determined the end of the wicked and we find that theme all throughout the Psalms. But I'm more interested here in in what the Lord is doing in the life of the righteous. Notice verse 4. He says this, after he says where the Lord is, he says, His eyes behold, His eyelids, what's the next word? Try the children of men. Who who, who is he talking about? Well, notice verse 5. The Lord trieth the who? Ah. We know the end of the wicked. And it is sure. That's what God is doing. But what is God doing with the righteous now, today? Were we expecting something else? Were we expecting maybe God comforts the righteous today? Now, He does do that. But that's not what this psalm says. Twice He says, He tries. He tries the righteous. Well, we know what trying means. We saw that, remember, we've been studying through the book of Exodus on Sunday nights, and we know that God was proving them, was testing them, was trying them. Uh, To do what? To humble them. To make them aware of how desperately they needed God in their lives. That they would not become self-sufficient and puffed up. Well, the Lord today is presently trying the righteous. You see, none of the Lord's children should hope to escape trials, nor in our right mind would any of us 
Should any of us desire to do so, for trials are the channels to God's blessings. I came across this poem by William uh, Cooper. He, he wrote this. He says, "'Tis my happiness below not to live without the cross, but the Savior's power to know sanctify every loss." Trials make the promises sweet. Trials give new life to prayer. Trials bring me to His feet. Lay me low and keep me there. Did I meet no trials here? No chastisement by the way. Might I not with reason fear I should prove to be a castaway? Bastards may escape the rod. Sunk in earthly cane delight, but the true born child of God must, would not, if he might. You see, we know what the end of the wicked is, but often we forget what God's doing with us. Pastor, I don't like it. Nobody likes trials. But could I encourage you with just a few New Testament scriptures. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and we'll be done. We'll go to Romans 5 and James chapter 1. What good can trials be? Well, Romans 5, he speaks to those who are justified by faith. In Romans 5 and verse 3, and he says this, And not only so, but we glory in tribulation. What are we supposed to do in tribulation? Glory in tribulation. Why? Because of what we know. Notice, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. You see, uh, we, we glory in tribulation not because of the tribulation itself, but because of what the tribulation brings about in our lives. Turn with me to James 1. James chapter 1. Along the same line as this Tribulation, notice with me James chapter 1. And uh, let's begin reading in verse 2. He says, My brethren, James 1 2, counted all, what's the next word? When ye fall into diverse temptations. Here, here's that next word, verse 3. What's the first word? Knowing. Do you see that again? That's what, exactly what he says in Romans 5. We glory in tribulation knowing. Here he says, we joy when we fall into diverse temptation, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work. Why does it say Because we don't let it. That ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Here's one of the reasons why God allows us to go through trials. So that we may become perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You see, when he says we glory in tribulation, we joy in diverse temptation, it's not in the tribulation itself, and it's not in the temptation itself, but it is in what the tribulation and the temptation works out in our lives. It produces something that was not there before. So consider... The Lord wants for our lives. Let me ask you this question again. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Nothing but consider what the Lord 
wants to do in your life. You see, unfortunately, we are often more interested in God making things right now with the wicked than we are in His work in us. Notice verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyes try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous. Verse 7, For the righteous, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. So, here is what I would encourage you to do by faith when you are troubled by either your circumstances or the state of the world. And that's what you see with your eyes. Can I encourage you, don't just look to God by faith, but consider that He is looking at you. He sees you and He wants to do work in you. See, that's helpful to us. Because ultimately we have to uh, get our eyes off of the world and get our eyes on the Lord, but not just our eyes on the Lord, but our eyes on what the Lord wants to do in us. And when we recognize that, well, then we can say, then we can say at the beginning, in the Lord, do I put my trust? That's where I find refuge. That's where I find hope. That's where I flee. And when that happens, we focus on the object of our trust, not just trust itself. Right? Because as Christians, here's what happens. As Christians, we're not just hoping, well, I hope everything turned out right. No. There are certain things we know and so we must become familiar to know those things and to know that God wants to do work in us.